is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago Business School, uh, and also a very important member for all of us in the steering committee of the IGC. Uh, and as many of you may know, he and a number of colleagues have done a great deal of very interesting research over the last few years on the question of differences in productivity and what that means in development. We then have a panel of commentators who come from a wide variety of backgrounds, and what we hope to do there is to, in a sense, explore a number of different uh, tangents and perhaps ideas that have been suggested by Chang's discussion. Uh, the first is Ludovico Alcorta, who is the Director of Development Policy and I would say also Chief Economist of the UN Industrial Development Organization, UNIDO, in Geneva. Uh, we then have a view from the private sector. Uh, Rashid Adingbeno is the Director of Corporate Affairs of the Manufacturers Association of Nigeria, and I also understand that he's also served as the representative of the Director General of UNIDO to his colleagues in Nigeria. So he comes with a perspective of both the private sector but some background in the concerns of international organizations as well in industrial development. And Harun Borat, who is Professor of Economics um, and Director of the Development Policy Research Unit at the University of Cape Town, who comes to us with a perspective from both labor economics and a very unique industrial economy, certainly the most industrialized economy in Africa. I am John Page. I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Um, as part of the deal for a deal to come and uh, moderate, since I'm not a very moderate fellow, I did uh, ask if I could make a few remarks at the end. So the way in which we will carry out the session is we'll ask Chang to speak for about 30 to 40 minutes. Um, then each of the discussants or panelists uh, will speak, Ludo, Rashid, Haroon, I'll try to wrap up a bit, but also maybe interject a few thoughts of my own, and then we'll come back to you, since we want to have as much time as possible for uh, all of you to participate in the discussion as well. So Chang, whenever you're ready, we can okay. start. All right, great, thanks. And then if I want to move pages, I, I just do a page down. You just click it. Yeah. If you do a full screen. Um, do a, uh, do a, do a, uh, which one is this? The full screen view. Uh, oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> and I All right, great. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. So what I'm going to talk about is, is, is I'm, I'm going to show you some facts um, uh, uh, some facts about you know what we uh, uh, so some facts about what we know about the microeconomic sources of differences in aggregate productivity across uh, uh, across countries. Uh, this almost all of this work is I, I, I just at the beginning that that this that this work is is, is um, jointly done with with my long with my longtime collaborator Pete Cleano uh, at uh, Stanford. So just by way of in in. In, 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 but in introduction, what we think about what we are trying to answer is, let's think about what are the proximate sources of differences in aggregate income across countries. And just in an accounting sense, you could break down differences in output per worker into differences in the amount of resources per worker that a country has to work with, and also differences in the productivity at which these resources are being employed. And I would say that a lot of the work 
uh, in development and also a lot of the focus in the development community has been on the resources part of this equation. There's been a lot of work primarily in, uh, in schooling and health um, in the last 10 or in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and you know, and, and so I'm not going to talk about schooling or health, and I'm not, and, and I'm not going to talk about the uh, the other part of resources, which 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 uh, one thinks might be important, which are uh, differences in uh, investment rates uh, across uh, 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 differences in investment rates uh, across countries. The part of this equation that I will talk about is what do, is what do we know about the differences in productivity in the productivity in, at which resources are being used. Uh, are, 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 are being used, uh, uh, being used uh, across countries. And in a sense, this is what I think of as being you know, one of the principal mandates of the IGC, that, that is to try to shift the focus of the research and also the policy work onto, you know, <coughs> uh, onto questions about what's going on at the level of, uh, at, uh, at the, level of, of the firm. You know, what, you know, where is the productive the productive capacity of the country coming from. So, by so if you want to ask a question, you know, how might you want to begin to organize the question of why is it that that productivity is that the productivity at which resources are used in poor countries are low? Two ways in which you can begin to think about this question is well, one answer is because firms, on average, have low productivity. All right. The second way in which you might try to answer this question is that, well, that's possible. But another reason for why you also have low productivity at the aggregate level is because resources are allocated inefficiently between firms. Right? And I try to, sh try to show you some evidence on how much each of these two mechanisms uh, matter. And I try to uh, uh, say something about what might be some of the forces, uh, what might be some of the forces that underlie both the inefficient allocation of resources and also the low pro, the, the, also the, the low productivity of firms. So I will go backwards. I, I will first talk about the evidence that we have uh, about the extent of the misallocation of resources across firms, and then I'll talk about the question about you know what do we know about what might be some of the forces behind low, low uh, firm, uh, low, behind the low, behind the low firm productivity. So the first thing that you want to do is that you, you, you need to think about how are you going to measure the misallocation of resources across firms, right? So what you need is that you would need to think about a world where there are firms that are different, and you, and you, and you need to have a notion about what would an efficient allocation of resources across firms look like. So there's a broad class of models in which you can, uh, in which the marginal product of labor is just going to be is just going to be proportional to the average product of labor, and the marginal product of capital is just going to be proportional to the average product of of uh, to the average product of capital. You can think about taking a weight average of the marginal product of capital and the marginal product of of uh, labor. And you can write that as, as if, if you were to just come, if you were to just combine those those first two equations, what, what you get is that the weight average of the marginal product of labor and the marginal product of capital, you can measure that by a simple number, by just the ratio of revenues, P times Y, which are the revenues of the firm, 
divided by an index of the factor inputs that's used by, by, the, uh, 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 by the factor inputs by the firm. Okay? If you stare at that equation for a minute, that's essentially what people who work with firm level the data, that's essentially what they measure as the TFP of, uh, as, as, as the TFP of the firm, as the productivity of the firm. Although, if you buy my, the, the argument that, that, that I made in, in, in the first line, what I'm saying is that you should not interpret that as the productivity of the firm, but you should interpret that, that the measure of TFP as being a weight average of the marginal product of capital and the marginal product of labor of the firm. All right? So let me show you what, what, what this statistic looks like in in the context of three countries. So this is essentially the dispersion of that weight average of the marginal product of capital and the marginal product of the labor for three countries. For the, the figure in the top plot is India. The data for, in, in, for in, 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 in India is, it's, it, this is essentially data from the annual uh, survey of industries. The li main limitation of this Data is that you only have is that you only have the data on the firms that are formal, right? And that's going to be a big deal when if or some of the other issues that you want to that uh, that you want to look at. The number in the middle panel is China, uh, for data that's similar to the the data for the annual survey of industries. Although China doesn't have the issue of formal versus informal that, that I, I think is really central one when one wants to talk about India. And the, the figure at the bottom is the, is, is the data from the US. So what you can just see from just looking at, at the graphs is that there clearly is a lot more dispersion. In terms of this, it, uh, the, the, there, there's a lot more dispersion in this weight average of the marginal product of capital and the marginal product of the labor in India and China Relative to what you see in, in the relative to what what you see in the uh, in the data for the U.S. So if you want one number to to have in the uh, in your head, one simple number is to just look at what is the gap between the firm that's in the 90th per, in the 90th percentile and the firm that's in the 10th per uh, that's that's in the 10th per in the, in the 10th percentile. So. Uh, essentially, what's, so what, what these numbers are is essentially the ratio of, of this weight average of the marginal product of capital and the marginal product of the labor of the firm that's in the 90th percentile relative to the firm that's in the 10th percentile. So in the case of the U.S., that's roughly a factor of 2. In the case of China, it's a, it's a factor of 6.5. And in, in the case of India, again, this is only using the data for the firms that are formal. It's a factor of 8. All right, so a factor of two versus a factor of six or eight. Uh, uh, like that is that. That's essentially the nature of the, the differences that that, uh, uh, that that we see. You go. You can also look at how these gaps have changed. Uh, uh, how these gaps has 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 changed uh, over time. So if you look at this data for for China in the last 15 years, there's pretty clear evidence that these that these differences across firms in the extent to which resources are 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 are, are being and are being uh, and are being uh, employed inefficiently uh, uh, that has narrowed significantly in the case of of China but it doesn't appear to have changed in the case of in 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 uh, in, 
in the case of, of, of India, and we saw some evidence that that I, I, I uh, uh, yesterday that, that that I think is is quite uh, similar. And instead, it appears to have worsened in terms of the gaps that we the, that we observe uh, in the the uh, the the uh, data. The other question that you could ask is, well, how much does this matter in terms of helping us understand what we see at the microeconomic level in terms of the distribution of firm size? So one question you could ask is, well, let's look at the actual distribution of firm size. So what I have there is that I have plotted a blue line, which is the actual distribution of firm size. And then you can ask the question, well, what would be the hypothetical distribution of firm size in all of these three countries if resources were, in fact, allocated efficiently? That's the red dashed line. Okay? And what, you, and what uh, you can see is that in the case of the, in, in the, case of the U.S., the efficient distribution that doesn't look all that different from the actual uh, distribution of firm size. But the thing that we were really struck by in the case of India, you know, that we were really struck by in the case of India, is that, uh, that an efficient distribution of firm size it involves having many more small firms relative to what we see in, in, in to what we actually see in, in what we see in what we see in in, in in terms of the actual distribution. One important thing to, to think about uh, this thought experiment is that what we're doing is that we're holding the distribution of firm productivity fixed. So we're not asking the first question that I, I outlined at the beginning. What we're saying is that the, the, the thought experiment that, 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 that we are doing in these figures is we're saying, let's look at the underlying distribution of firm productivities as we see it. And let's just ask the question, if we were to reallocate resources across firms, what would the distribution of firm size look, look like? All right? But another question that you could ask is, well, well, what does the distribution of firm productivity look like? And why does the, and why does the distribution of firm productivity look like the way it does? So. Let me show you some numbers that illustrate the, 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 this point. So this is a plot of the distribution of the number of workers. Now, the data that I'm using for I I India is different. It is different. So the, the, the data for India that I showed you before is the data from the annual survey of industries, which is just the data for the firms that are formal. What I've done here in, 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 for, for India is that if I want to get a complete picture of what the distribution of firm size looks like, you also have to look at uh, you also have to look at the firms that are in uh, at the firms that, that are in uh, for uh, firms that are informal. So what the data for India is, it's basically a combination of the data that are formal, the firms in the ASI, plus the firms that are informal, and you know, um, and that's essentially for the, those of you that know Indian data, it's essentially the the data from the uh, the, the data from the uh, from the uh, Schedule II of the Indian uh, National Sample uh, Survey. So what does this say? Okay, what is the size of the median firm in the U.S. manufacturing set? It's about size 40. Okay, that's about what the size of the median firm in in, in the case of the U.S. What's the size of the median firm in 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 in, 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 in India? 
it's between two and three. Okay? So roughly, the median firm in India is basically, I don't know for sure, but my guess is that it's a husband, the wife, and the kid. Right? That, 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 that's essentially, and you have basically, basically, you know, all of the resources, not all, but, but basically 70 to 80% of the resources in the Indian manufacturing sector are employed in the sector. Okay? The question is then, where is this distribution coming from? Okay? Where is the, the, the distribution coming from? So one way in which you, you could begin to make some uh, progress on, 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 on this question is that one of the facts that we know from the US is that, uh, is that a lot of firm growth comes from what happens to a firm after the firm is born. So if you look at the plot for the, uh, well, if you look at the plot for the, for the US, so just uh, focus your attention on, on the, the panel that's there on, on the bottom. What I've done there is that I basically looked at a plant that is born, okay? That is essentially, those are essentially the plants where the age is less than five. I look at the average number of workers of those firms. I follow those, the, that cohort of firms over time. And I look at how the average size of, uh, uh, the average size of those firms change. Now, what, 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 what you see is going to be a combination of two effects. There's going to be the effect of the market selection process, in which some firms stay and some firms quit. And this, and this average can change if what happens in the market is that the least productive firms are the ones that quit. Okay? And then the other part of what's going on is conditional on firm survival how is the productivity of the plant going to, to, to change? So roughly, what you see is that between the time the plants are born and the time that plants, say, hit 20 years of, of, of age, they grow by roughly uh, two, log, two, log, two log points. So I hope I'm not doing logs wrong in my head, but that's roughly a factor of seven. Okay? So plants grow by roughly a factor of seven. On average, between the time they're born and they hit, uh, they, 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 they hit uh, 20 years of, uh, of age. Now I want to focus your attention on the plot for India. Okay? Again, this is the, the data here is essentially the combined data from the, from the annual survey of the industry and the schedule two of the national sample survey. So and we do exactly the same thing for India. Look at plants that are born. And then we follow that, that specific cohort over time, and we see how the average size changes. And what you can see is that the stunning fact is that it's about as flat as you can see. So the, average, the, the size of an average firm in, in, in India, when they hit 20, is exactly the same size as, an, uh, as, as a plant that, that is born. Now, in the case of India, we don't know uh, there's no way in which we can tell for India how much of this is coming from differences in the way in, in, the, in which the, the way in which the selection process is is uh, happening in India, or 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 differences in the way that 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 firms are growing conditional uh, on survival because the Indian data is not a uh, parent. 
right? We can do that in the case of, of the Mexico, which in fact is a panel. And if you look at the, 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 uh, the data for, 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 for Mexico, what you see is that the slope is also, is, is also flatter than what you see in the, in, in the US, but you do see some growth. So basically, you see an increase in, in employment of about 0.7 log points. So it's roughly a doubling. So in Mexico, you see roughly, uh, you see roughly, uh, you see roughly, uh, roughly a, a, a doubling. In the case of the U.S., you see an increase of a factor of seven, and in the case of India, you see nothing. So how uh, uh, the, another way to look at this is to say, well, uh, how, how do I go? All right, is to just look at the employment shares. So the share of total employment of, of firms in different size groups, in, sorry, in, in, the, in the different age groups. So first, just look at the, uh, the data for the, for, the, 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 for the US. What you see is that the employment distribution is concentrated on, on, uh, is, is concentrated on firms that are older than 39 years, all right? What you can see for it, it what you, what uh, what uh, you can see in the case of it, it what you can see in the case of it, India is that more than fifty percent of 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 uh, employment is driven by is 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 concentrated on on firms that are uh, that 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 that, uh, that that have less than ten that that are less than ten years of 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 of. of of age, and what, 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 what's going on here is that the is that the the, the difference between the, the U.S. and and, and, and in, in the U.S. and India is that the older firms are no more productive than the firms that are young, and then you have many more young firms in all three co uh, co countries because you have a death rate of approximately ten percent per year in 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 all of the the uh, in, in all of the countries. So this is just another way of, of seeing, you know, of of of, of, of uh, seeing the point that that basically firms that that there's this there's there's a significant uh, difference between countries in the nature of you might want to think of it uh, you might want to think of this as being the life cycle of firms that seem to be significantly the difference <laughs> between uh, India Mexico and uh, and what and what you see in in the, the U.S. and I said that you know what 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 you want to be able to do is, is that you want to be, be what, what you want to be able to say something is how much of the differences that you see is driven by the, by uh, differences in the nature of the selection process and how much it is 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 uh, driven by differences in growth rates conditional on uh, on uh, on uh, on a sur on on a, on a sur on a survival. Let, let me skip this point. So. The, 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 so essentially what the, the story here is that, well, you know, part of the distribution of firm productivities that you see at a given point in time is going to come from the differences at the rate at which firms are growing after they are born. Because at a given point in time, what you see, what you observe, what, what you have are firms of different age groups. So some firms are going to be new. Some firms are uh, some firms are going to be old, and a big part of what is different between in, in, in India and and the, the the U.S. is that these 
the, is that the characteristics of these old plants seems to be significantly different in India relative to what you see in the uh, US. I'll, I'll just take two more, minute, uh, two more minutes. One national question that, 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 uh, that uh, you should have in your head is, well, fine, I buy these patterns in the data. Then the next question that you should be asking is, well, what might be the kind of policies or institutions that might account for some, for some of these uh, patterns in, in the data? So, so since I knew that uh, ha, since I knew that that ha, that that uh, ha, that uh, Harun is here, I, I decided to just talk a little bit about this, uh, some of the uh, the the the, uh, the evidence of, of what's going on in in, um, uh, in in the case of Mexico. So let me tell you about this particular policy in the case of Mexico, which I think might play some role in explaining some of the patterns that, that we see in the Mexican data. And, and the, specific, the, the specific policy is essentially the Mexican social security tax. And what this tax is, it's essentially a, it's essentially a payroll tax of 30% on the wage bill of workers that are formal. And basically, you know, most wo workers are legally obliged to, to pay this tax. And what this tax does is that if you pay this tax, you are eligible for access to the to the publicly run healthcare system and for the publicly run uh, pension system. Naturally, what you see is that there seems to be a huge amount of evasion of this tax. So this is the data that so in the Mexican census, they specifically ask a question on the firm side, how much are you paying to the Mexican Social Security in, uh, to the Mexican Social Security Institute? So if you look at the data on firms, what this is is essentially the fraction of firms that report paying anything. Okay? That, that re the, the fraction of firms that report a number that is positive. Now, firms that are paying something could still be cheating on the tax, right? But so, but so, the, so, the, the, so the, this is really just a really bottom. It's essentially a, a, a lower down estimate of the extent of cheating. And what you see, let me just uh, focus you on the aggregate numbers. In 1999, only 17% of the plants in the, the data report paying anything. So 83, uh, so 82 per, uh, sorry, I can't do my numbers right. 83% of firms are paying nothing to, are paying nothing at all to, uh, to, the, to, to the system. In 2004, the number seems to have gone down. So you have uh, seven, uh, so you, you only have 13% of the plants in, in, in the data that are in the system at all. So why, might this be? Well, you know, why, might, why, is, why is compliance low? Well, there are two stories. One is that, you know, although workers get some benefits from paying this tax, it might very well be the case that the value of the benefits that they get, the quality of the health care that, that they get, the, 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 the return on the pensions that they get, is lower than the 30% wage bill that they have to pay. So this tax 
although it's meant to provide social security, it effectively becomes a tax. This, this wedge, this gap between the value of the benefits and the tax essentially, be, essentially, be, essentially becomes a tax. This, the problem of compliance is compounded by one of the responses of the government to the very low rates of coverage. Because if you think about what the, the, what the consequence of low compliance is, you have basically a big chunk of your, work, work, of your, work, of your workforce is out, of the, is out of the system. They don't have access to health care. They, they don't have access to pensions. So the response of the government was to say, well, we've got to provide social services to, to, the, to the people that are not to the people that, that are not in the system. So starting in 2004, what happened was that there was a dramatic was that there was a dramatic expansion of a parallel healthcare system and a parallel pension system that is that you have access to if you don't pay taxes into the formal social security system into the formal social security system. Well, you can see what this does. On the one hand, you already have a face of tax. On the other hand, if you don't pay this tax, you get access to all these other benefits. So you, you get access to all, so this further increases your, it further increases your incentive not to pay, not to apart, and not to participate in the system. So you can look in the Mexican data to just look at you know, what's the difference in, in the marginal product of labor and the marginal product capital between the firms that are paying this tax and the firms that, that are not paying this tax. And it's a difference of about 40 per, it's a difference of about uh, 40 percent, okay? The other thing that you, you, that, you, that you can also tell, and that this is gonna be important in thinking about how this, this particular policy or these set of policies are gonna translate to some of the patterns in the data is that compliance is, is very highly correlated with the size of the plant. So I spent a day with, with, the, uh, with, the, with, with the office that, that, is, that is responsible for enforcing the tax. And after a day of trying to understand how their office, uh, how, how that office allocates the the uh, allocates their 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 resources in the in the, in the deciding how to collect the tax. The guy at the end of the day was really frustrated with me, and he said, "Look, let me explain to you what we let me explain to you what we do. We go hunting for animals in the zoo. Okay. So if you think about what what the guy is saying, right, right, that we we go and we collect the taxes." From firms in which it's in, in which it's pretty easy to to collect the tax taxes from. If 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 there's if there's an animal that's not tied down, that's not in, in the zoo, it's too much work. Uh, it's too much. Let's not go after the. Let's not go after. Which is perfectly sensible from the vantage point of the tax enforcement agency, where you know their you know their objective is to increase the total amount of the increase the total amount of revenues that they have, right? They're not after trying to make a system 
work, uh, or trying to work, make a system work efficiently. But the problem is, if you think about what that does to the incentives of firms, well, nobody wants to be the animal in the zoo. And, and no, no, nobody wants to be the animal, so this creates all kinds of, in, this creates all kinds of incentives for firms to just remain small. Because if they grow big, well, you know that tax inspector is going is going to come is is going to come out is going to come uh, after you. So I hope that um, Harun will say something about about you know what some of the labor market distortions in in the context of South Africa might be. But I'll end here, John. Chang has violated one of my closely held principles of chairing sessions with academics, which is normally you tell them they have 30 minutes and they'll speak for 40. I told him he had 40 minutes and he spoke for 30. So he's, uh, I, hope, I hope that the, uh, the panelists will show the same admirable uh, discipline, although I think asking five minutes, it's probably reasonable that they should take the full five. So Ludo's agreed to lead off and uh, we'll turn to you. Thank you. Thank you. John, thank you, Chang. Um, I want to focus on just part of the presentation of uh, Chang because he creatively expanded it for this session, and I had only been privy to part of it, so I will focus on that part that was privy to it. It's much richer, and some of the issues I have and will raise have been addressed already. But anyway, I will move, I will say, make my points nonetheless. I think the main point of the contribution of the paper indeed is that resource misallocation cost China between 30 and 50 percent and India between 40 and 60 percent in terms of ter uh, total factor productivity uh, taking the U.S. as benchmark. So there's a big productivity gap, gap between the U.S., China and India. Now the first point I wanted to make and I'll make two points, one regarding uh, the argument and the second one regarding the policy implications is are we really talking about misallocation of resources or are we talking about structural change? Let me elaborate on this point. In 1986, already Sirkin uh, said, already pointed out that structural change affects total factor productivity growth through reallocation effects, intersectoral reallocation effects. <coughs> and TFP only converges across countries at very high levels of income. <coughs> Further, he also pointed out that TFP grows very fast at middle levels of income. So between, let's say, eight to 10, 12, 15,000 dollars per capita, that's where productivity, TFP grows very quickly and converges towards the end. Now, <clears throat> the point here is, <clears throat> to what extent can we compare the uh, India-China, given that uh, income per capita or GDP per capita in, in China is one-eighth of the US, and that income per capita and GDP per capita in, in, in this one twelfth of the US without taking into account all the structural differences, structural change differences across countries. So that would be the first point. We have to think, think in terms of structural change and structural change differences. The second point related here has to do with <clears throat> productivity differences subsist across countries for a number of reasons. One is a bit of methodological one. Differences in the composition of activities, even at four-digit level. Uh, when you look into the automobile industry, for instance, at even four-digit level, you have on the one hand countries that are just producing parts, other countries that are producing fully assembled cars. 
there's some difference in the composition of industry that might be affecting the productivity uh, estimates. There's also a difference in the nature of population of firms. <coughs> firms vary in terms of, of, of technology capabilities, etc. And we have very heterogeneous industrial structures in developing countries as compared to developed countries. Of course, that will explain productivity, but perhaps the point is, in order to make some comparisons, shouldn't we separate the modern sector and the traditional survival sector to see whether there's something interesting happen there, happening there once you separate and co compare the modern vis-a-vis -vis the US and the more traditional and leave it aside. So there's an issue there about the heterogeneity. How do we deal with the heterogeneity of industrial structures in developing countries? Third point is that difference of, uh, in stages in industry development in terms of takeoff, consolidation, and decline. The textile industry, for example, uh, grows very rapidly in terms of MVA per capita, up to $600 in terms of MVA per manufacturing value added per capita. It grows very quickly. Then it sort of grows, consolidates, next stage, and then uh, declines above roughly $3,000 per, per MVA per capita, manufacturing value added per capita. So are we talking about the same, same moments, same stages of development? How do we take into account the different stages of development of the energy industry? Um, differences in country characteristics, such as uh, population, resource and amounts capabilities. Another, let me give you another example. For example, uh, the automobile industry in countries under 15 million people take off before US $3,600 manufacturing value added per capita and decline above $16,000 per capita. So they accelerate up to $3,600 and they decline above $16,000 per capita. Uh, that's small countries. Countries that have more than 15 million people ac uh, accelerate up to $3,000 per capita and accelerate over $21,000 per capita. So we have differences in life cycle of industries that we would, one would like to think about when one is looking into uh, comparisons of productivity. Three quick points, and I'm running out of time, so I have three quick points on, on policy implications. At early stages of industrialization, one typically finds four, at four-digit level, lots of very, very, very few firms struggling to compete one or two things, firms per four digits. Now, is it an issue of resource allocation, what policy should be focusing on, or is it an issue of entry that policy should be focusing at early stages of industrialization? Second point is <clears throat> research that we have conducted at UNIDO for 45 years, 23 industries, and 126 countries suggests that capital and labor accumulation are critically important at early stages of development. You have to have the machinery, you have to have the people. That is also critically important for industrial development growth. And I think that is, uh, from a policy perspective, one would have to focus on those dimensions too. Finally, uh, uh, Reallocation of resources across industries is a long-term process. And it's at the essence of industrial development and structural change. People have to be trained, new skills have to be developed, people have to physically move, new machinery have to be created. <clears throat> Arguably, rather than focusing on, on sectors per se, perhaps the way to build new industries and to build industrial and to move across the, uh, the, the industrial stages, would be much more, uh, rather than building sectors, as I said, but would be building actors and focusing on emerging actors and or new actors. Because that probably is probably the most successful way of achieving long-term industrial development rather than focusing on sectors per se. I'll stop there.
That was very good. <laughs> okay, Rashid. Well, thank you. Well, I'm coming from the perspective of uh, the experience in Nigeria. And I'd like to open my discussion by identifying with the words of Carlos Magarinos, former director general of UNIDO. Carlos says, where we, how we live is a function of where we live. These words capture the essence of migrant problems, the shifts from poor economies to the developed economies. And that is what I think the entire issue of productivity is all about. It's about poor, about rich. If you are not productive, if your industrial level is low, there are pains to pay as a price. So because of this, there is a global distortion. And that accounts for the shift. But coming to Nigeria and maybe West Africa, we want to ask why is productivity low in poor economies. Chang has already addressed that mostly the SMEs dominate the environment. But another key point is that many of these businesses come on board without any business plan. They just want to do something for a living and they find themselves in business. So the internal structures, the human resource, the skills required to monitor their businesses and put it on the path of productivity are totally alien to them. Of course, technology is also out of their reach. They lack also the measurement skills to be able to build their businesses. So they start small, they remain small, and at the end of the day, the economy remains small. Well, these are internal issues to them, but external to them also is public policy issues government, the public sector has a role to play in this. But over the years, we have discovered that there's a disconnect between the operators in industrial sectors and the public sector. Chang alluded to the issue of compliance. Many SMEs are averse to documentation, they are averse to tax policies, they are averse to regulation. But the return, what you can call reverse osmosis, is that government is unable to provide the necessary incentives because there's lack of information, there's lack of data. Uh, there's a disconnect in terms of governance, corruption, which was addressed yesterday at one of the sessions, and so many other issues. So these are the issues that militate against the growth of SMEs. It's a case of failed expectations. But with this, are we going, are we going to give up? Of course, the, the answer, I would say, is no. Uh, Within the sub-region, that is the Kowas region, that is concerned to rebuild the SMEs, to make the industrial sector more productive. And that's the UNIDO, that's the ECOWAS funded but UNIDO driven industrial upgrading and restructuring. The hope and objective of this is at the end of the day, the industrial sector will receive fresh life. And of course, there's also effort to put up original manufacturing institutes similar to the one in UK, Malaysia, and so on, in order to, to rebuild the skills of the uh, SMEs that dominate the, the landscape. The global concern is that the status of these companies 
is a threat to global trade. Because they have strong pressure, because they are large in numbers, there's strong pressure on them not to enter, not to allow the governments to enter into partnership, trade liberalization, globalization, they are the key threats. And I want to ask, why do we consider this? The fear is that the market is open only to those who are strong. So if majority of countries in the developing world are poor, the likelihood that the government will stall on, on global trade issues. Uh, one want to suggest, what are the changes on ground? UNIDO is on, there's need for public-private partnership, and this involves also the research institutes. The job uh, of IGC is great. More studies are required to empower the private sector business associations to be able to do proper advocacy. There's a need for government orientation, and this can only happen when studies are on the table to consider. So one would like to commend IGC for this wonderful job, and we also expect development partners like UNIDO to continue the good work to be able to improve the poverty, I mean to improve and get many countries out of the poverty level. To the SMEs and the poor, the poor com companies, resource allocation is alien to them. It's Greek, if you, if you allow me to use that word. All they want is improvement, and this can only come through training, through proper governance installed in all the, in the countries. Uh, for our region, Nigeria and West Africa, of course, our issue is quite clear, long years of military administration, and therefore a distortion in terms of advocacy and improvement. But now that there's democracy, now that they were trying to integrate into the global economy, there's need to reverse all the errors of the past. Uh, we'll be talking about suggestions and, and uh, conclusions. Global solidarity is required to reverse the poor state of the poor countries. If you drive it towards the global economy, then all actors need to go along. There's need for resource allocation in terms of training, support, from the developed world to developing economies if the vision of a global market is to be achieved. Uh, this is all I want to do. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. All right. Great. Um, so like a good academic, I've been surviving on a diet of marginal revenue products and all sorts of things that Chang writes uh, really interesting stuff about. Um, but he gave me a space to talk about enforcement and regulation, so which was very kind of him. Um, I guess I, the, the starting point for me is to, is to, is to lean on Chang's, uh, the observation of this long tail in the distribution, which we've seen in a couple of presentations, and um, uh, the particular variant, which is the allocative inefficiency story. So what I'll try and focus on is what I think are um, at three, possibly four um, constraints, right, that one can see in some of the work uh, that goes on in South Africa, particularly, and, and partly Mexico, uh, as, a, as, a, as they exist as constraints, not the only constraints, but part constraints on the allocative inefficiency that you see. Um, and I'll start with a, a, very, a very brief story, and the story is of, of, a, of a, a woman on the east coast of South Africa in Durban, who manufactures, she's a machinist, her name is Madlamini, she actually exists, and she makes uniforms, but she makes school uniforms for households in the area who have children, right? Fine, she has one sewing machine in her, in her household. 
Um, but Madlamini realizes that there is a procurement, a state procurement tendering process. So the state tenders within the province for a single firm to get the entire contract to manufacture these school uniforms. And so what she does is she realizes, well, I need to get this tender. And so she rushes off to the government office, uh, which is very costly because it's far away. And once she gets there, she realizes that every single tender form that she needs to fill in is in English. And she speaks no English, right? In fact, she's barely literate. Um, and in fact, you can, you can build the story up, but it's a story about how state procurement is key, right, in many developing countries, in South Africa, in many African countries. And the, 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 the state is a, is a key purchaser of goods and services. Yet in many cases, access to those tenders, to those <coughs> procurement options are not available to micro-enterprises in particular. Um, in South Africa, it expresses itself as the well-networked um, or the uh, uh, or the well-heeled, in the case of black economic empowerment, who then get these contracts. There's no, there, there's significant barriers to entry to improve uh, the kind of sort of allocative efficiencies that we're looking for in firms such as these that Madlamini and others run. Um, so a policy fix that one thinks about often is that in these contracts that the state then uh, the state then writes with the recipient who's it's one uniform producer for you know, three million children. It cannot be Madlamini, but it can be a fairly large enterprise who would then sign off with the state that a certain portion of the value of the contract must go to uh, micro-enterprises. And, and there are ways that you could think through that. A second key constraint that the same woman faces is that on her plot was a car with a seized-up engine. Right? And you ask the question, well, you know, maybe you could use the car to go out there and find business. Well, the car, the engine seized up and there's no financing available to actually fix the car. And the reason she can't fix the car is because she had no short-term insurance. And so we know about credit market failures, but there's significant insurance market failures. And in a, an economy like South Africa, uh, where the Swedish insurer, Scandia, is owned by a South African company, right? So you've got a very well-developed formal sector insurance <coughs> industry, uh, getting down there to micro-enterprises on the insurance side uh, is actually a huge issue. So it's, and it goes beyond moral hazard problems. Um, and so that, for, for somebody like uh, Madlamini, her micro-enterprise, right, if you gave her short-term insurance and you gave her a tiny little bit, 0.01% of the state tender for uh, uniforms would make a huge difference. And one can think of generalizing that. So those are the two. The third, the, the third area is around regulation. Um, and it's a broadly cast and, 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 and uh, I mean, uh, the, the input from Chang is exactly right, that it's, it's less about what the Doing Business Survey says, right? I mean, I think we, uh, it's been a very valuable instrument, but often it's what happens after you measure the regulation or after you look at the regulation. And the enforcement gaps that you see um, are phenomenal in many countries. So some of the work that I've done with Ravi Kanbu for South Africa looks at minimum wage legislation. So what the index, if you had a doing business type index, uh, would show is that uh, minimum wage regulations are a problem because South Africa has 10, at least 10, sectoral minimum wage laws, right? So you put that into your model and it's, right, it's unlike India, it's probably going to be significant, right? The problem is that 50% of all workers, the enforcement gap, the violation gap is huge. 50% of all those workers that are stipulated by the minimum are actually below the minimum, right? 
for the four or five million workers that you have in South Africa that are ostensibly covered by the minimum wages, there are one less than 1,000 labor inspectors. There is no enforcement agency, right? And so what, you, what you've got to try and do is actually figure out what's going on on the enforcement side or the compliance side. And I think that's the really interesting story in terms of how we look at uh, the impact of regulation on, uh, on, on uh, allocative efficiency. Um, continuing with regulation, another example, I sit on the board of a little asset management company. And as I find out with asset managers, little means sort of a billion rand of assets <laughs> under management. Um, but they're particularly worried because the state, in the wake of the crisis, is changing one subclause of the Pensions Act, and it's around the management of hedge funds, right? But that's not what worries them. What worries them is the uncertainty because the capacity within the state to actually formulate quality legislation, clear legislation, around a very important um, uh, uh, law for them doesn't exist. So there's no capacity within the Ministry of Finance to actually legislate. And so often what you see as a law may in fact uh, mask uh, poor quality law, uh, inefficient uh, uh, um, thinking through the legislation. And so just a simple measure of regulation is never going to be enough. Um, my, I, I sense my chair is staring at me, so I'll quickly plug in one last <laughs> comment, which is uh, Chang made a nice thing about the, the, the micro firms were mom, dad with, with the child, right? And often at, at the micro enterprise scale, we never think of this firm household as coexisting, often they do, right? And what that means also is that interventions designed and, and targeted at households, in fact, could have outcomes for the firm that are quite fundamental. And the, the big example is Latin America and in South Africa as well, which is the rise in the, and the growth in social assistance grants, right? So that whether it's the CCTs, the Progressor in South Africa, the child support grant and so on, these have gotten into poor households where there is a firm, right, ongoing. And so it's sort of a cash, a capital injection into the firm, not just poverty alleviation for the household. And that's had interesting consequences uh, that I don't think we've explored enough. Thanks. I'll stop there. Okay, well, there's a huge moral burden on me now to be hopefully at least as concise as, as all of our uh, panelists have been. Um, so I'll try to make four points that some extent are inspired by the, the discussion we've had. The first is just both a personal but also a professional point, which I think is very important. The last two days of conversations at this conference have served to reinforce something that has been out of fashion for a very long time in the development business, and that is that firms actually matter. If you think about it, both the intellectual architecture of development economics and certainly the aid industry have not paid very much attention to the firm in the last 15 to 20 years. Many other admirable goals, the Millennium Development Goals, which are being discussed in New York as we speak, but the idea that enterprises matter for development is really one that is a rediscovery of some of the things that folks like Chenery and Sirkin were talking about some 40 years ago, only with better technique and hopefully greater insight. And I think the stylized facts are important. The distribution of productivity among firms in developing countries is much wider than it is in advanced economies. The left tail of the distribution, the concentration of inefficient firms, is greater. And firm size in general, as we heard in the case of India, Mexico, and for those of you who were at the Ethiopia presentation yesterday in the case of Ethiopia, tends to be much smaller than it is in advanced economies. And these are some of the drivers, if you will, of differences in productivity. But as Ludo reminded us, there's another important issue here. 
which is that for low-income countries, I would argue for India, but certainly for the Ethiopias, Tanzanias, even Nigerias of the world, one of the great problems is getting simply more firms that are productive. I'll make clear about that. The share of industry for the average African economy is less than 15%. The share of industry in India is around 20%. In China, it's now probably about 35 right, China? Structural change in many low-income countries has been in an arrested state of development for about the last 20 years. And so one set of challenges that exists is thinking through how development policy can help to accelerate structural change, how we can get more productive firms. And let me be clear, I don't care if they're farms, their manufacturing enterprises, or their services enterprises. Simply creating the capacity to have high-paying jobs. And several of the interventions, some of Haroon's points about small and medium enterprises, some of Rashid's points have to do with that. And I would argue much of the World Bank's focus on the investment climate has much to do with that question. Policy change to accelerate structural transformation, if you will. But what Chang has been talking to us about is, in a sense, making firms more productive. And I would argue that's equally important. Um, and here, the stylized facts, again, that we have from his work and the work of some of the others that we've heard in the last two days is that size is important, survival is important, entry is important. These are elements that create, if you will, a fluid manufacturing or enterprise sector in which it is possible to move from firms with relatively lower to relatively higher productivity. And that's important. Um, and to that, I guess the only comment I would add is something, seeing Tony Villables up there in the room, what about the role of space and concentration and geography? Uh, I think it's an unexplored area. I happen to know that Chang's busy starting to explore it, so I can say this because that'll be his answer. But I think we also need to understand whether in these distributions of productivity we're also seeing very, very different effects of agglomeration on enterprises. And the public policy question is then again, so what? Can we do something about it? If so, what might we do? But it's an under-researched area, I think, and one that deserves certainly future effort, and I hope <coughs> Chang really has some success in, in doing that. But let me turn to the second aspect, which is the one that he sort of set aside and said, well, there's also something, let me call it firm practice, if you will. That is what goes on given the technology, given the factor proportions within the firm. This, again, goes back to a very old tradition in development economics. I think the first person to think about this in economic terms was Harvey Liebenstein, who called it ex-efficiency. It's been called technical efficiency. It's had lots of names. But what it means is how well do you actually do what you're doing? And here, I think it's encouraging to me that recently we now have in the firm capabilities group at the IGC a number of different efforts to look at that usually through the question of, do management practice matter? If so, what are those management practices? But to that, I would add a couple of Haroon's favorite subjects. What about human capital, skills? I think that's essential, and we need to understand much better the role of skills and distributions of skills in this. And to that, I would also add something which is, again, an old subject, but I think worth going back to, the mastery of technology. And I don't see John here. If John Sutton were here, he'd say, you can buy technology, it's capabilities that are important. But I think what I'd remind him is that one of the capabilities is to actually master the technology you have. In some cases, you can do that by, quote, buying an engineer. But it may, as we've seen, if you go plant through plant in the third world, actually get down to the level of what are the work practices of the operators right on the assembly line. So this is a huge area. And if you look at it, and I think I asked Chang about this, and I've misquoted him, he'll tell me. 
But if we look at his numbers, he can explain in the India and China data, given the instruments that he has and the way he's doing this, about half of what the differences are. But the other half of these differences, which are big numbers, are things we really can't explain because I suspect it's within the firm and it's the practice of the firm. And that's where, of course, the role of many of the things that are going on in the research and firm capabilities group comes in. Finally, simply a word on policies. I think this introduces a very interesting way of looking at the contentious question of policies for industrialization. Notice I'm in a very good world Vivanki way avoiding the term industrial policy. John Sutton came up with an interesting term yesterday, enterprise policy. There are a set of standard prescriptions which have to do with removing the impediments to efficient resource allocation or reducing the uncertainty or cost of investment, which I would argue have to do with the structural change agenda. They have to do with getting more efficient firms. There are another set of policies, which are the much more contentious ones, that have to do with whether or not public policy can actually raise the productivity of firms. Can firms learn? Can they become more competitive? And if so, how? I think the reason why those are contentious is because we simply don't have much of a fact base on which to begin to have a dialogue on what types of appropriate public policies might be used, what their costs are, and what their benefits are. So I would argue that here again, the payoff in terms of policy to investing in that area of understanding will be quite large relative to the payoffs to investing in the allocative issues if only because, at least with the exception of the message we got on India yesterday, there's some evidence base to believe that some of the old prescriptions are actually pretty good and reasonable. But when we're working in completely unknown terrain, I think it becomes a very, very difficult area without a much greater evidence base. So hooray for firms, but we've got a lot more to learn than we know. Now, since you were so disciplined, Jane, um, if you like, if there's anything that's provoked you, if you want to have a quick answer to the panel, I'd certainly welcome you to do that now. Otherwise, he says no. It's your floor, ladies and gentlemen. Let me start down here. This is front row bias. Uh, hello, my name is Sandeep Bansal, and uh, thank you very much for the interesting presentation. Uh, I'm hoping that you will comment on current productivity trends in India and China going forward. Uh, I know in recent years we're seeing tremendous growth in that part of the world. And, and I, I suspect some of it is probably due to some gains in productivity. And, and I'd like to know whether the gap between the US and Asia is narrowing in terms of productivity. Thank you very much. We'll take two or three, I think, and then let Chang pick and choose. Yeah. Uh, you'd have to give her the microphone, I think, because, yeah. Uh, one of the assumptions in your model is that the technological frontier is similar for the three countries for which we saw the graphs. And so is that a reasonable assumption for the non-traded sector? And the mom, dad, and kid may actually be producing a non-traded good, in which case they're in a completely different technological world um, compared to that for a traded good. Yeah, Mike. Also taking account of uh, Dr. Al Korta implicitly when he mentioned different population size, uh, I wonder whether the panel could say what they see as the importance of scale of production, uh, not 
knocking around firms from the US to Ghana to wherever, it seems it might matters quite a lot. And so maybe one should tailor one's policy to what is a reasonable sort of thing to do in the country you're in. And particularly China, would the panel agree or disagree that why they've been so successful? First of all, they are, of course, a very large country. But secondly, they've been able, in effect, to produce for the world market. Thank you. Do we have one more before I turn it back to uh, Yes. My question is for Professor Chang. Um, you explained very well how social security taxes incentivize the Mexican firms to remain small. Have you found similar uh, reasons for India? I would imagine that since you've looked at only the firms in the formal sector in India, most of them would have to comply with corporate taxes. One of the things that's true when you look at the data for I, in, for I, for I, India, I mean, so so, Pete and I did a little bit of this, and and then and and, and, the, and the, the the paper that we, we saw yesterday, uh, I, I think just confirms that, is that one of the things that that is that is a real paradox is, is that, no matter how you wanna, how you wanna slice the Indian the you wanna slice the Indian uh, the data. What you see in does just doesn't seem to be correlated with anything. Uh, 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 so I, I mean, I, uh, um, so why that is, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I, I guess I'm my hunch. You know, so at, at the end of the day, I guess I, I've, I've got to believe the evidence. So my, my sense is that basically not, you know, that that that. All of the stories that we have about what's going on in, in, in what's going on in, in India, they're largely not in the data that we can see, which is what's go, what, what, what's going on in the manufacturing uh, sector, and that all of the action is in what's going on in the non-manufacturing sectors of the uh, non-manufacturing uh, sectors of the uh, of the economy. Maybe something is going on in the agricultural sector, which, which then which then uh, would be good because then Mark would have the the the, the necessary the da necessary the data in order to to receive to see it. Maybe all of the the, the the maybe all the transformation in the Indian society is going on in the services uh, services uh, sector, and and unfortunately that's just one of the huge holes in in uh, the, the 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 huge holes in in. in in our data, the, the 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 only two countries that that that, that I know that have that, that have pretty decent data on the service sector is China and Mexico, but I, I, as far as, as I can tell, there there isn't any such uh, data for India. So and unfortunately, that's that's where one suspects a lot of the action is is um, uh, 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 the. The, the, the actions come from. Just one quick uh, answer to the question about uh, about the technological frontier. I, I, I guess I'm, I, I don't think I can fully understand the question. Essentially, one way to think about uh, what what we're doing is that we're basically just looking at we're basically just looking at firm size. That's if, if you want to think about uh, you know 
you know, what's the, the you know, what's a theory that's underpinning what we're saying. What we're saying is that in an efficient equilibrium, differences in productivity across firms are going to show up in terms of differences in firm size. And then in the stuff on, on misallocation, what we're saying is, well, to what extent do we see, well, differences in, in the ratios of the products in the ratios of revenues to the factor inputs, and then we're going to interpret them as being marginal products. So then the, the productivity that we're going to back out from the data is essentially going to be the size of the firm after controlling for these the differences in in the ratios that we see. So we, we so we, we essentially take the underlying distribution of firm productivity as given as given. So I, I guess I'm I'm not sure I, I what what the what the what the frontier means. Uh, 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 I guess the question about what growth is going to be in 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 uh, China in in China and India. I, in China and India, I, uh, the safe answer for an I academic is I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> Last question was on economies of scale and size. I mean, you've answered the question in terms of size distribution. But I don't know if there's anything else you have. I don't. I, I guess I don't have anything to say about it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm currently looking at so the, some of the, the, the so I, I, I just say that the Chinese data that that I've I've worked with until now is essentially it's not the complete census for China. It's essentially a census of all the large firms, but still we're talking about uh, uh, you know so even with the census of the large firm, we're talking about four hundred thousand plants now, in, in the case of China, and they they do that data every 10 years. China also has an entire census uh, that's done every 10 years. So, so uh, and, and, uh, uh, every 10 years. And there we're, there we're talking about 1.6 million firms. Uh, and and what, what, what you see in the case of China is that average firm size has fallen. Uh, largely because there's been this massive, uh, there's been this massive, uh, 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 massive entry of firms. Uh, so a lot, uh, uh, and you know, you know, and I guess if if you were to ask me, uh, come back to me uh, in uh, 20 years, I can tell you, <laughs> you know, what is going to happen to those firms after 20 years. But unfortunately, it's just the sort of thing that I have to wait 20 years to be able to <laughs> tell you. It's a long-term investment. Any responses? Okay, back to you, folks. I'm Vahid, and my question is from Professor Chang Tai. If it does, me a firmer boy, consider the time as well. Can uh, you speak a bit louder? Yeah. Uh, you started by some key factors like uh, uh, resources, but you didn't talk about resources. What do you mean by resources? Uh, just uh, specifically, example, just, um, just capital and labor. Uh, I have, I'm, f I'm from Iran. We have a lot of uh, Afghan workers. They're, they work a lot. The productivity is a lot, but we don't have so much result out of that. You're saying that workers in Afghanistan work a lot, but yeah, I, I just want to know if you're talking about uh, there are not uh, uh, some allocated workers for resources. How can it be possible that they work a lot, they have productivity, but the result is nothing? 
I'm not sure I understand. So is the question is why are wages in Afghanistan low? No, I just want you to tell me what is the what 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 do you mean by allocating the resources? What do you mean by that? It's essentially the question. Suppose that you look in an, and you look in an, in an economy. You have some firms that are pro, that are pro, that are productive, and some firms that are less productive. Or you want to take John's language. Some firms really master their technology. Some firms don't really understand the, the their technology, and they're operating with some slack. It, if uh, if uh, if you will, the question is well, how should be resources, capital, and labor? I mean, that's those are the two things I'm to look at. But you you may also want to broaden it to think about intermediate inputs uh, as well. How should resources be allocated across these two different types of firms? Okay, and what what the notion of economic efficiency tells us is that. And efficient allocation is going to be one in which the marginal product of capital, the marginal product of labor, the marginal product of cloth, if you're talking about a textile firm, marginal product of electricity, should be the same for the two types of firms. What is that, that going to imply in terms of quantities? If you think about a world where there, in which all of these things have diminishing returns, then the firm that is better, they're going to have, they're going to have more capital, they're going to have more labor. They're going to use more. They're going to use more electricity. They're going to use more, more of that, uh, more of the all the other inputs relative to the other firm that is producing a product that is similar but is somehow less. Uh, that is somehow less. Uh, that is uh, less efficient. So that is what what. So that is a notion of an 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 efficient allocation of resources, whereby resources are in capital, labor, and the, the, the other stuff. Now, the thing is that, obviously, when you look at the world, that's, that's uh, we look at the world, you never see that. So the question is how, you know, uh, how much is that condition violated when you actually look at the, uh, when, when you actually look at the, uh, the uh, data. Yeah, I wonder, Chang, if you could uh, say a little bit about multinationals in, in the following sense, that uh, you seem to be saying that one problem uh, in these countries is that small firms, small young firms uh, fail to grow. Um, but then you would think that what, what's missing is large firms. The problem is the large firms would have to come from new firms in this country. But another possibility is that large firms come from other countries. Yeah. And this reminds me of a paper by um, Burstein and Monge a couple of years ago in the mm -hmm. QJE where they were saying uh, that would explain that the, most of, of the uh, productivity differences arise not from lack of, I think they were calling it firm capital or, or you know, uh, the ability of domestic firms to produce more, but the pro problems that affect productivity for all firms. So it's not lack of firms is that anybody who produces in those countries is going to have low productivity. So I just wonder if you, if you can speak to that. Um, sure, I can answer that. Um, I, I, I think that that is certainly going, 
I guess let me answer the question in the, this way. What we're saying is that an important part, so if you want to think about the framework, the, 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 the framework that we have, you can break down aggregate productivity into a term that involves gaps in marginal products across firms and in a term that involves some measure of the productivity of the representative firm that you see in a given cross section. What we're saying is that some of the differences in this representative pro, uh, the, the, in this representative productivity is going to come from post-entry growth behavior uh, that differs between that differs between uh, 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 countries. Now that itself is only going to explain a fraction of the differences in the representative productivity that we that we see. Uh, that we see. So, so, and, and so then one, you know, so one thing that one might think about doing is to say, well, you know, this part is driven by post-entry growth behavior. Then what about the other? So I can just give you the, uh, the the numbers that 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 we seem to be getting. We seem to be able to explain about 20 percent of the TFP gap through this post-entry growth behavior. That still leaves a huge chunk. That still le 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 leaves a big chunk. So those those stories might be uh, those, those so so you know those stories. So uh, I want to be clear that, that in no way are 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 we saying that this is this is the only thing that the only thing that's going on, and that would that was of a bodily my the notion of of the world, which, which which is that any single explanation, if, if you ever claim to me there's any single one thing that explains everything, I, I, I would say that oh, that almost certainly is wrong. Uh, <laughs> I think we had, and let me just take this gentleman here in the back who had his hand up before, and this will have to be the last question, given my consciousness of grievous bodily harm. Um, thank you. Uh, Dirk Tevelde from the Overseas Development Institute. Um, I'd like to have a uh, ask a question about um, promoting industrial productivity uh, and in particular the role of public policy in this. That was the last question that, uh, that John Page uh, mentioned. Um, the issue is, uh, is uh, well, one, you can think about removing the constraints uh, across all the, the board um, uh, to, to doing business. But then the question is, could you also do more than that? Could you help firms, uh, individual firms? Um, and then uh, what I'd like to know from the panel is to what extent there is uh, sufficient evidence base to uh, target specific programs to by firm size. So I, I suppose from what I know, from the data sets that I've worked on in the African context, is that um, larger firms tend to be more productive than smaller firms. Um, but in terms of industrial productivity, that a lot of productivity growth can also come from smaller firms, only from entry and exit. But what what um, uh, Chang mentioned was that actually uh, uh, it's quite important to think about post-entry growth and therefore when it comes to smaller firms you actually there is a role for policy to think about uh, promoting productivity of smaller firms rather than thinking uh, about just promoting um, entry and exit of, of smaller firms. Am I right in interpreting this that you would favor uh, particular targeted policies by firm size? To, to help them uh, raise their productivity. Okay. Is that a question for me? That's a question for you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I don't know. 
I, I don't know. I, let me just tell you what some of the patterns. Let me tell you some of the facts that you see from China. For, for example, I, I'm not going to give a complete a, a, a answer to your question. If you look at the Chinese data, one of the most striking things that you're going to see is, is, I guess there are three things that, 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 that that's going to be very, 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 very striking. If you look at multinationals in China, or depending on how you want to uh, classify a multinational, a foreign firm, right? A foreign firm, which can be, you know, 70% of those firms are basically firms that, that are owned by investors in, in uh, Hong Kong and, uh, in, uh, in, and uh, Taiwan. What, what you see is a, is a very clear pattern in, in the data that these foreign firms, in the case of China, have a marginal product of capital and the labor that's about 20% lower than that of domestic firms that are producing the same thing, okay? If you look at exporters in China, firms that, that, are, in, that, are, that are involved in exporting activity, what you see is that export, uh, 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 exporting firms relative to, the, uh, to firms that are not involved in exporting, the, uh, that are not in, in, in involved in exporting, that are in the same sector, they have a marginal product that's 30% lower. Than, than, than that than, than, than that firm. And once you delve more carefully, once you delve more clearly into the institutional details of what has happened in China, it's clear that one of the main instruments of policy in, in, in China has been to massively favor foreign firms and to massively favor firms that are exporting versus firms that are not uh, that are exporting. And this takes place through a whole host of, of things. They get preferential access, they get preferential access to land, they get tax breaks, uh, the, a, a whole bunch of, of things. The question is, what do you want to think about this? You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, has this been welfare improving for China or or a helpful welfare improving for, for China or not. Through the lenses of a world of resource misallocation, this is just classic misallocation. This is classic, misall classic misallocation. You're making the foreign firms bigger than what they would be, you're, you're, or, you're, or you are getting more of them than, than what you, you would get. You're, you, are, you are getting more firms to export than what you would otherwise do, and that also might have, have an, addition, an, addition, an additional effect that basically all of what you're doing is that you're just lowering the prices of the stuff that you, you have been making, so the beneficiaries are the shoppers at Walmart uh, versus your, your uh, the, versus the uh, uh, domestic consumers. The question is, well, you know, that's only a static view, but then you also want to think about, so I'm sure that this is going to harken back to the debate that John was involved in, was involved in. You know, well, you know, what, how do you want to think about what have been the dynamic effect of these distortions, if you want to think about it, or, it, or Chinese industrial policy, uh, 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 or, or uh, 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 Chinese industrial policy. So as of now, I, we, as of now, I don't know. If, if you want to ask me in about a year, I may have some answers for you. But uh, whether that's been good or bad, I don't know. 
So that's not big versus small, but that's targeting by what you do. Uh. Well, on that note, we have to end. What I would say is tune in next year for the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> and tune in in 20 years' time for the answer to the penultimate question. So uh, we hope we'll all see you back here again. Thanks very much.